The doctrine of discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. And I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. You may remember in podcast episode seven that we discussed the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, which is a major piece of civil rights legislation for Native Americans that has come under threat in the courts. ICWA was created and passed in 1978 to protect American Indian and Alaska Native kids in child welfare proceedings by keeping them in the care of extended family or tribes whenever possible. On November 9th of this year, 2022, the United States Supreme Court will hear Brackeen versus Holland, a case challenging the constitutionality of ICWA. In Brackeen versus Holland, a small group of opponents will argue in front of the Supreme Court that those protections should be taken away. And that will have far-reaching impacts if that happens. So in this episode, we're going to be putting a very human face on the importance of ICWA by talking to a mother from the dominant culture who fostered a Native child. We invited this person to talk to us because we feel it is so important to hear and understand what is really at stake with the possible overturning of ICWA. Because of the regulations and ethics around foster parenting, the details of the people involved involved in this podcast have been changed, including the names or, in some instances, the non-use of names. So thank you for being here today, Shannon. So you're a foster mom from the dominant culture, as I mentioned, and you have had firsthand experience with the foster care system. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I was, I knew I wanted to be a foster mom because I myself grew up in a foster home. And so it was just something that um, was part of my own childhood. Um, and it was a incredible experience. I I have a lot of people that I call my brothers and sisters because we were, we were foster brothers and sisters and um, we were of different races and ethnicities. So I, I saw how that impacted and it's very related actually to ICWA. So I, I knew as an adult that I wanted to foster and provide a temporary safe loving home for other children. Shannon, I'm so glad you're here and you chose to join us. Um, we're really pleased that that you reached out and and that you're able to um, to be part of this conversation today. And something you've shared with Sherry and me is you've had the opportunity to foster a Native American child. I wonder, before we just start talking about all the legal implications and that kind of stuff, would you be willing to tell us about your foster child and your re- relationship with them? Yes, I love talking about my foster child. And and thank you for reaching out to me and inviting me because I never have spoken publicly um, about this, but I appreciate the work on ICWA. And 
part of becoming a foster parent is having training. So the training really prepared me for being a foster mother and all that that entails. And part of my training was ICWA. So that is required. And so um, it really helped me understand the the issues. Um, but I love talking about my foster child. Um, she came to me as a baby and um, she was with me for two years. So a lot happened, of course, when you have a baby, just seeing um, just all the different phases of babyhood and toddlerhood from like learning to talk and crawl and walk and potty train and <laughs> everything. Um, so I'm very, I just, she's a beautiful, happy baby, like very, very smiley baby. Um, she loves ducks. She loves birds. Um, those are like her favorite toys. And we have a lot of nature outings. Um, I have a biological child who loved her and, um, it's just all the fun things about, about babies and toddlers, even just like getting them clothes as they get bigger and, um, having a baby walker. She loved like rolling around the kitchen and the baby walker. And she had a favorite cabinet that did not have a child lock on on purpose. Cause she could just pull out like Tupperware and play with it. And she was delighted by <laughs> all kinds of things that babies are delighted by. Um, and just super sweet personality. I, I just loved her. We, we, my daughter and I just, just loved her being part of our life and she will always have such a special place because, um, she, she was, you know, she was part of our family for so long. Yeah. You know, as you're talking, Shannon, it's just reminding me about so many things of my own child. I have one child and, um, you know, I have a little boy and he loved his walker. He just zipped all around in that. And it just reminds me of that. Um, and also he loved birds and especially swallows and he learned how to how to do the bird calls before he was even talking it just reminds me of being out and walking in the wetlands yes she loved um hearing geese honk and there's a field of the geese spend the fall and winter here as so i love to take her there and she definitely was trying to communicate with them um the cats were very afraid of her when she first came as like a little crying baby. They were like, what is this thing? And then when she learned to crawl, they really freaked out. <laughs> so they avoided her. <laughs> she would try to get the cats. Um, and then she learned to walk and she was pulling up on the shelves and pulling things down. And the cats were just looking at me like, what is this creature? <laughs> so, yes, a delightful little girl. And just um, we, I'm still in contact with, with her and I'm, I'm really glad that I just continue to see her, her grow and be the little person that she is. I wanted to thank you, Shannon, for reaching out to us to just be part of this work. I mean, you, you've, you know, came to know us and said, yeah, I want to help um, be part of this, um, this work. Um, I'm, you know, together with indigenous peoples. And then we reached out to you and invited you to participate in a podcast and really asked you to do that. So I wanted to make that clear that, yes, you're here by our invitation. Um, but I wanted to thank you for being willing to, to step into the work together with us. Yeah, I'm really glad to. It's very good work that you're doing. And I, I want to know how to support. And I thought it was important in the ICWA case. It made me sad that it's foster parents that are wanting to strike it down. It's people who are adopting that want to do that. And that I wanted to make sure that people heard another voice, that there are those of us who foster, who believe in ICWA and we support ICWA. Um, and, and that's why I just thought it, if you wanted to, you know, I'm, I'm glad you invited me because 
just like we know that there are churches who are um, upholding racist systems and there are churches who oppose it, it's the same, you know, in the world of fostering. There's very different reasons people foster. Can you say more, Shannon, then about what, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm really struck by the fact that you wanted to make sure that as a foster mom of a Native child, you your voice is being heard on this. So can you tell us why ICWA as an issue is is so important to you? Why do you, you know, believe in it so much? I believe in it because I know that there is this terrible history and legacy in my country of Native children being removed from their families and put with non-Native families. And that has had devastating impacts on the people around me. Um, and that's that's wrong. Um, and when I became a foster mom, I knew that what I was signing up to do was to just be a temporary loving home and wanted the best for my foster children. I've, I've had multiple foster children and I my role is for them to like be someday with a permanent family. And in the case of Native children, being in a permanent family and wanting them to have that chance to be with their, their own family biologically or their native relatives, or at least in their tribe or in tribal community is so important into the formation of the child. Like that is their identity and being able to be part of that. And I respect sovereignty of nations. And I know ICWA has a lot to do with indigenous sovereignty and I don't want that undermined. That is so important and it has been undermined so many times in the United States. And so ICWA was a good law. It protected children. It kept communities together. And I witnessed that in my own childhood, seeing a foster sister who was Black, and she was always running off to, you know, to be with her grandmother, to be with her brother. She missed her family. She was separated from them. And if there had been a better way that she could have kept those bonds, how important. And I want that for my own um, Native foster child, that she have those bonds, that she has that network and, and family. And it's a beautiful culture that she is part of. And I, I want her to have those connections and they need her too. The, pe- the people that she's from, she's the most amazing little girl. She's going to grow up to be this lovely human being. Like they need her as part of their community. So it's not for me to like see her as something that I get to have or that I would be fighting for. Like I want my all of my foster children to have amazing lives. And so I get to be part of that temporarily and love them. And the most loving thing is to want my foster children to feel connected to their family, relatives, community, tribe. So, yeah, a question I have, um, Shannon, you know, because I think I so appreciate all the things that you're saying, like, what, these are your values. And this is what is important to you. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of give us a window and what it might be like for Native kids in the foster care system without ICWA. So if ICWA didn't exist, what might that be like for Native kids? I think if ICWA didn't exist, it's not acknowledging where Native children come from, that they belong to a people and a place, and it's not recognizing that. And I worry that that means there isn't intention put behind 
where um, where priorities could be for Native children to feel connected to culture and place is so important to everybody, to everyone's identity, and especially for Native children because of that legacy of being removed and what that's done. And again, ICWA is about tribal sovereignty. Um, and so that's important. Like we have to recognize that, especially with the history of broken treaties and undermining sovereignty. So when I, when I think about Native children in the foster system, um, being able to be in a family or having a, you know, a good, a good chance of being in a family where people, where you look like the people that you're with, where you have shared traditions or experiences. These are things I couldn't provide for my Native foster daughter. I couldn't I couldn't pass down traditions and cultures. I couldn't pass down language. I couldn't pass down all these beautiful things that are part of her tribe. I, I can't give her that. I can give her a lot. I did my best, you know, to just love her and make her feel safe. But there's a whole world that she belongs to that I can't give. And so ICWA gives children a better chance of being connected to that. Gosh, I really appreciate that. And I, I, I think I may have shared a little bit about this in episode seven, but, you know, my life has really been impacted um, by, by the context that surrounds ICWA and that my father was removed from his family at birth before the existence of ICWA. And the impact of that removal has been so um, so impactful in my life and the life of my family of origin and, and in, in the lives of, you know, of my, the family that I created together with my partner. Um, because my father was removed from his family and he was actually put into a boy's home 300 miles away from his tribe and from his land. Um, he never had contact in his lifetime with his people and um, he was not adopted by a family from the dominant culture. Um, he grew up in a really difficult environment, a boy's home, and was completely um, isolated from his people. And um, I guess what I want to say about that is, you know, the public health arena, we know that culture and language and that sense of extended family and belonging um, provide protective factors against things that youth at risk, anyone in the foster care system would be a youth at risk um, that they encounter like drug abuse and um, like suicide attempt, um, depression, anxiety, um, culture and language and extended family provide protective factors that insulate native kids from those um, negative uh, potential, you know, barriers to, to good health. And so, um, and my, my father grew up without that. And then in my life, um, we were basically part of a diaspora. Keep in mind at the time of ICWA in 1978, um, nearly 25% of all native kids had been placed outside of their homes. And so that was a diaspora of people who were lost to their people, their people lost them and they lost their people. And so, you know, I was part of that diaspora. And so uh, the impact um, uh, is that, you know, growing up in the difficulties that I faced and my, my family of origin and what was going on in my life, you know, there was no extended family or, or any, any protective factors for me too. So the impact is, you know, it spans generations 
And so, you know, I really appreciate what you're saying, Shannon, because, um, you know, that, that lack of, oh, that just absence is so keenly felt, certainly by the child, but then also in, in generations that follow. And I'm so sorry. Like, I, I hear you, and that was wrong. That was wrong what happened to your dad and the impact that had on you. And like you said, the generational impact that had. Like, these things are wrong, and I don't want to be part of that. As a foster mom, I don't want to... Um, I'm glad for ICWA because I, I'm glad that there was some remedy that was tried in the 70s, and we need to protect that. And so I'm. that's why I was willing to come on this podcast and say, like, here's a different voice than these other foster parents who are fighting it. Like, I believe in this. I support this because what happened to your dad and to your family was wrong. And we, we have to do better. We know that that wasn't right. There's a different way that we can love children and keep children connected. So I don't want that to happen to my foster kids to, to feel like they don't have that intact, their identity, their family, their relatives, their culture, and then all of what can come with them with that kind of trauma. I'm, um, and, and Sarah, I just want to say I, I, that you really talk very movingly about that in the, I think it's the first chapter of your book, The Land is Not Empty, Following Jesus and Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery. You have a section in there that when I've been in book groups and people have read that, where you name just the dynamic, just what you just talked about, it's it's really moving for people and powerful, and they get it, they get why it's important. So I guess I'm putting in a plug for your book, but specifically to read chapter one if you just want to understand more about why that is so uh, Iqua and uh, Native children's having that connection to their heritage is so important, their tradition, their land, their people, and their language is so important. I'm wondering if, I'm kind of wondering if one of you might be willing to talk about how does ICWA undermine tribal so- tribal sovereignty? Because I'm not sure everybody on our podcast will immediately get why it's undermining of tribal sovereignty. Uh, I, I shouldn't say why overturning ICWA would be undermining of tribal sovereignty. Sure. I'd be, I'd be happy to just summarize that. And Shannon, I'd love for you to just add comments as you, as you want to. So, you know, in 1978, when Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, this act was really put in place to ensure that kids that had to be removed from their, from their parents, the home of their parents would be placed in a, um, in the home of an an extended relative first, that would be the first preference. Second preference would be um, for a member of their tribe. And a third preference would be with another Native American family. And so um, a very important aspect of ICWA is that the, the people who get to determine where that child is going to be placed includes their tribe. So their tribe is the one who gets to determine um, they have a, they're a party to the placement, right? So, so the only entity who has the ability to say this child is, is not part of our tribe is the tribe itself. Um, whereas before, you know, the, the welfare system could just say, oh, this is not an Indian child. 
you know, there was this, there is now a process under ICWA where the tribe has to be consulted and they actually are a party to the placement. So they, they get to participate in determining where this child is going to be placed permanently. So one thing I think is so important about this is that being permanently placed in a family of the dominant culture is not off the table. That is possible to do. Um, it's just simply that it, it is, according to ICWA, it's in the best interest of the child to be placed um, with an extended family member first, which that is pretty much seen as the gold standard in the welfare system across the country, that children thrive um, most uh, when they are placed with a relative, because, you know, for all the reasons we talked about before, those provide those protective factors. Um, you still are placed with, with your, your own people. And then, um, second with a member of the tribe so that you're, you're able to remain in your own community. Once again, that's really considered, um, common practice in the welfare system. Um, often, um, uh, this, the welfare system tries to keep kids in the same schools. Um, they want to disrupt the lives of children as little as possible. So, so helping a child to remain within their own tribe is is a, a, a part of that. And then the third preference is to remain in a Native American home. And so um, this is, once again, to provide those protective factors. So, that, so the tribal sovereignty element is acknowledging that these decisions are made because children are a part of a tribe and a tribe is really a political body. It's not um, a racial category that you put on a census, right? The tribe actually has sovereignty, which is to say it has the right to make decisions um, and self-govern. And so um, each, each tribe has its own welfare um, system within it. And that, that system um, should be in charge of determining what is best for that child and where that child is going to be placed. That's really helpful, Sarah. Thank you. Yeah. And so if I didn't say it explicitly, if, if um, ICWA is undermined or found to be unconstitutional, it would actually take away, it could potentially take away that right of tribes to be the, the best advocate for the children um, that belong to that tribe. And so the argument that is made is that this is based on racial criteria, but, um, but it's not based on racial criteria. It's, it's based on tribal membership. So Shannon, I have another question going back to you. You know, you were talking about your your foster daughter in the beginning of this time that we've had together, you know, it's really evident to me how much you care for her and what a big part of, um, of your life. Um, she even continues to be, I mean, you even mentioned that you're still in contact with her. And so, you know, and you've, you've shared with, with me and also with Sherry that, you know, you love her deeply and yet you support ICWA. I wonder if you could tell me about that. Is the, is there at any point a temptation to adopt her and keep her permanently in your home? Um, and, and how do you, how do you deal with that duality? Yeah, that's, that's the, that is the hard part. Um, yes. When, you know, when she came into our home, we didn't know how long that's something that you just don't know when you're fostering, like, what kind of time does the family need? Other situational things that are happening. There's no timeline for that. 
So we opened our home and our hearts. I say we because I have I have a teenage daughter, and um, yeah, she became of course part of our family. My my parents, you know, were here at Christmas, and and she was part of that. And um, I you know I'd Facetime with my siblings, like you know they got to see her learn to crawl. You know, every time she do something new, I we were excited. We were sharing that she is part of our family. And there was a moment where my daughter did say, like, why aren't you fighting to adopt her? Like, don't you love her? <laughs> and of course I loved her. And of course there was that want to, like, keep her with us always, even though that wasn't the initial agreement, you know, when she came into our home. And that's not the training I had with ICWA. So, um, yes, there were times where it, the hardest part for me in fostering, and, and I have fostered other children, too, is um, when they're no longer in my home, you know, the goodbye is really, really hard. Um, and so of course that came up. And so my daughter and I had to talk about that just because I wasn't fighting to adopt, didn't mean I didn't love her. Um, that it was because I loved her that I want her to have her, her family and her culture and her tribe. And I want them to have her. I want them, I want her to be part of that. And I want for them, for her, like, she's just so amazing. Who is she going to grow up to be? Like, I don't, I want that for her. And so I'm really happy that by keeping good relationships um, with the people who have her now, like she still can be part of my life, but definitely it was painful. I mean, the day we said goodbye and she wasn't here, I, um, I like put all her toys in the spare bedroom and just closed the door. I didn't want them in the living room. I didn't want them anywhere where I could see them at first, you know, cause it was too painful. Um, and that is, that is part of fostering is like knowing that you're temporary and there will be the day and, and what you want knowing that that's going to happen, that I'm temporary home. You want them to have the best life, the best home. And I know that the people she's with love her and I'm, I, I hope to always stay in her life and just see what it's like for her to grow up. And, and I have that fear, like, will she remember me? You know, during COVID, it was harder to see her. And um, yeah, like, I don't want her to forget who we are. And um, so, yeah, we definitely had those conversations about like, sometimes when you love someone, you do want, like, you just want them with you all the time. Um, but that wasn't, that wasn't, that wasn't the agreement I went into. That wasn't the training I had. That's, I know these systemic issues are in the histories. So I don't want to participate in things that separate Native children from their community. I appreciate you being willing to share with us so deeply, Shannon. And, you know, I also just want to say, I appreciate, you know, how much courage it takes to come and, and to speak about your personal experience and so deeply. And one thing that I'm getting out of this and Sherry, I wonder if, if you're hearing this too, is just how there's more than one way to love someone, you know, yeah. try and make it simple, you know, but it isn't simple. You are doing your best to parent this child. And this is one of the ways that, that you're doing that you're expressing love. The word, the word open-handed, an, an open-handed love kept going through my mind as you were talking, Shannon, like both open-hearted because love is, I think, truly open-hearted, but just the open-handedness, like just, there's no possessiveness. Well, yeah, there's not a possessiveness there, right? It's just, 
I am, I am, I am, I'm caretaking this, this child while the child is with me. And then to be able to release, even though that's really hard and we can hear, of course, and I also have a, uh, have a child. I can hear that sorrow in your voice as you talk about that, but like the courage to be vulnerable in that way and to, and to be open-handed and just release that child to, to what is in the child's best interest. I mean, what a definition of love. Um, and I'm, I'm really moved by what you've been sharing. And I just want to say like, there are other foster parents who also, we know this going into fostering and, and we're taught that in the training, you know, that we're temporary and the long-term goal is always uh, for any child is to bring them back to their relatives, you know, that that is the best place that that can happen. So I'm not alone in saying these things. And although she is her own little person and she has such a strong, awesome little personality, she is part of something greater, you know? And so just acknowledging that what she comes with, she comes with so much. She has ancestors, she has family, she has all these beautiful parts of, of her culture and, and a, and a cultural identity. And so just acknowledging her not as like just a little person that I could mold or anything like that. Like anyone who has had a child, Sherry and Sarah, you both have children. Like there's things that, you know, my daughter might mimic my facial expressions, but she's totally her own person. <laughs> yes, sure. it's like, she's like her and like I've shaped her, but she came, she came as her being, right? The same with my foster daughter, she came as with a cultural identity. And so how could I not recognize that? And thankfully, again, in my foster training, we are trained on ICWA. We, I knew what that word was. You know, I knew what that law was. And most people, I think, don't really know it outside of foster care, maybe out of Indian country. But um, but I did. Like, and, and so I'm glad that they that they did teach us that. It doesn't, it doesn't mean everybody is supportive of it, but there are others who, who are. Who do and and who just that's what it means to love as a foster parent. So Shannon, I had another question that is a little bit sensitive in nature. And you know, this is it. As a foster parent, you you recognize or you understand that this child is is in your home because something went wrong in their family of origin. And I think there is a a, a sense you know, in among people who haven't, this isn't part of their life to dehumanize the parents um, when a child has been removed from their care or when they voluntarily um, removed a child from their care. And I wonder if you would be willing to speak to that in terms of, you know, thinking about um, the parents in of your foster child. Yeah, I have a lot to say on that. And I have to think about privacy issues. <laughs> um, there is, there is sadly people who want to um, judge the biological parents or dehumanize the biological parents. And thankfully, I haven't felt that way with any of the biological family of my, of my foster children. Um, and we actually, again, in training, we talk about um, judgments people make about biological families that have their child taken away. And one of the things they did in our training was say, what are um, what are things people say about foster parents that aren't true, but are commonly believed? And so we had to name like, yeah, people think we're doing it for money. Totally. We're not. People think we're abusive. Like at all foster. Parents. So like they had us go through, like, what are the myths about foster parents? 
because we wanted to break down like when we dehumanize. And so one thing I had shared in the training was, um, and I have to just think about some privacy issues, but I have a sibling who's married and her in-law had her children taken away. And that in-law that she, my sibling had, had, um, had an, a problem with drug addiction and would really worked hard to get free of addiction. And it was just hard. So there were times where my sibling's in-law couldn't and, and the children ended up in foster care. And I knew that my sibling's in-law, you know, that, that person's part of my family. And so I don't think of that person as like not loving their children. None of that. I, I knew what they were going through and how hard they wanted to be free of it. And I knew the people around them was like bringing them back into drugs and like just how hard it is to get out of that. And so don't want to villainize people. Um, and so like with, yeah, just thinking about that and also things about one of the common ways that native children are taken from their homes to speak in more broader terms, cause I'm trying to be careful of privacy is, um, is around um, what gets called neglect, but which has to do with poverty. So with several of my foster children, I often take babies. I have to um, make formula. I have to make bottles for them. And several of the babies I fostered needed a special type of formula that's a medical grade formula because of health issues. And it was $40 a can, which was shocking to me. I didn't know that which formula cost. And one of my foster children um, went through one can in two and a half days, and it was $40 a can. Well, as a foster parent, I don't pay that out of pocket. I don't pay for diapers out of pockets. I don't pay for, I have a clothing allowance. You know, all of these things are provided to me because I'm caring for that child, but that is not for the biological family. Like how unfair, right? That, that state funds are helping me to foster, but are not helping a bio parent. And then that bio parent is called neglectful. And that's just not right. Poverty is not something that people um, should have their children taken away for, right? Poverty is something that we, there is a solution to poverty. Like we could be supporting a parent and getting that $40 can of formula the way I was supported. So there's a lot of reasons why children might be, might end up in foster care. And sometimes it's for the wrong reason that they're removed. And so I just think like, yeah, I don't ever want to villainize or dehumanize because the most common way, at least in, in my state, that the most common reason a child is taken from their home in my state is not abuse. It's it's called neglect. And so this is not a child who's been physically harmed. It's a child that fell under the, the idea of neglect, which usually is about poverty. Mm. I really appreciate you sharing that. And, and one of the, one of the things that's been so important to me in, in getting to, to talk with you about this is the, the way that you spoke with respect about um, the family of your, your native American foster child, because, you know, that family and the extended family, um, you know, I think, let me just back up and say, I think there are folks, maybe some of our listeners who believe that if a child is removed, then all bets are off. And, you know, let's just, let's just charge, um, into the future when in fact, um, when a child is removed from their family of origin, 
that doesn't mean that every single person in their community and their extended family and their life is unworthy and that there is often the opportunity for reunification. Yes. And exactly. When I went through foster parent training, I would say about a third of the people in my class um, were family members and they definitely wanted to keep their niece or grandson, you know, in their home. So they were also going through the training with me. Um, And so I heard lots of stories of family. And sometimes the story was that they had a family member struggling with addiction and the opioid crisis is real. And how we got there is an awful story of like who profited off that, right? And poverty is real. And so just seeing um, families wanting to care for and love their child and getting that support and training through the program I was in was really good. Well, I know some of our listeners are going to wonder, what can I do? Um, Obviously, we can't go and argue this case before the Supreme Court, nor should we. But what can just ordinary people do to support ICWA? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that, Sherry. You know, the the one thing that I, that I I constantly am asking our our listeners to consider is being part of our coalition, but you don't have to be part of our coalition to um, support um, indigenous organizations that are are doing this work. So we um, strive to support NICWA, which which is the National Indian Child Welfare Association. Um, and um, it's possible to reach out to NICWA wherever you are. But just to tell you a few things about what our coalition is doing, we are really trying to get people talking about ICWA and, um, and showing up in your own community for the Indian Child Welfare Act. And that can feel a little intimidating to do. So if you work with our coalition, we'd be happy to help you. Um, we're writing letters to the editor. We're um, asking people to talk about this um, at church, you know, an adult study hour in small groups. We want to really um, complicate the conversation about ICWA because usually the way it's talked about in the public is very in very simplistic terms. There are people who are being denied the right to adopt a child. And we want to make it more complicated than that because this is a complicated issue. And um, this case is going to the Supreme Court. You know, we can't really, as a public, influence the judicial branch in the same way you can't with legislation. But what we want to do right now is get people talking about it and understanding it. And if you're interested in joining that work, um, please do reach out to us and and we'll put um, in the show notes um, contact information for NICWA or at least their website and then and then our coalition as well. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you so much, Shannon. I'm really grateful that you were willing to come here and tell your story on our invitation. I know that that was, um, you know, um, not an easy story to tell. And there was a lot of privacy things you had to juggle as you were telling that story. But I'm just very grateful that you're willing to put your voice out there on behalf of this. Thank you. Thank you, Shannon. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for all of your work. And I I hope ICWA will be upheld and things will just get, we'll have stronger and stronger support systems for, for children. This podcast is hosted by us, co-produced by the DDFD Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, 
go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Our theme music is by Micah Peplo and Shannon Kaler. Thank you.